Let us hear God's word, 2 Samuel 1, verse 19. The beauty of Israel is slain on your high places, how the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath, proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised triumph. O mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew nor rain upon you, nor fields of offerings, for the shield of the mighty is cast away there, the shield of Saul, not anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan did not turn back, and the sword of Saul did not return empty. Saul and Jonathan were beloved and pleasant in their lives, and in their death they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles, they were stronger than lions. O daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you in scarlet with luxury, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. Jonathan was slain in your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. You have been very pleasant to me. Your love to me was wonderful, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen, and the weapons of war perished. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his holy word. Amen. Well, as we uh, have seen here, of course, the author is deliberately trying to demonstrate how David is not like what his haters have said. He did not kill Saul. Um, He received Saul's crown and armband from the Amalekite. He executed the Amalekite for killing Saul. And here he has mourned for Saul immediately and now in this lament. And so last time we tried to establish some of the broader aspects of the lament, and simply all Israel had to learn it to mourn also, and to motivate them to fight against their enemies. Now I did think about one other idea uh, here this week, and that is, by teaching Israel this lament, not only would it encourage other people to lament and, and then say that David is not against Saul, but it would help any Saul haters from turning against Saul's people. Remember, David had 600 men that were following him, and a sizable number of those were following David because of what Saul had done, not only to David, but even to them. And so by forcing these 600 men, along with everybody else, to learn this lament, it would help to turn aside some of the anger and and hatred. Um, So another uh, aspect in that way. Well, last time we looked at the first line of this lament specifically in verse 19, and uh, you recall that it um, speaks to the event itself. The beauty of Israel, the beautiful king, was actually pierced on the high places of Gilboa. Now, 1 Samuel, of course, emphasized how Saul's sin led to his demise. And so even though they were on a mountain, they were safe from the chariots, they were in the high place and had the advantage, the arrow still found Saul, um, and he was judged in this way. But David doesn't emphasize that here in the lament, and we'll see that brought out uh, here tonight. So again, now, as we look at uh, the insert with my translation and such, um, I'll follow through that, and and on the, uh, the back side of it, uh, you'll see, uh, again, uh, some of the 
summary ideas. And the most significant one, of course, is that God's not mentioned at all. It's very striking. Uh, the, The emphasis of the lament, can you say, is not the hope, but the sorrow. It's not that there is no hope. It's just not the emphasis that David gives. All right, so looking at our um, outlines then, verse 19, the opening lament, and this is what we looked at last time. So now let's look at uh, each section here. The first one is verses 20 and 21. So verse 20 says, and note the commands here, Do not declare in Gath, do not bring news in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised ones exult. All right, now first of all, notice the parallelism. Uh, David does this in nearly every verse here in this lament. And so remember, we're rhyming ideas here, and pretty much every one of them that we see are very similar. Um, There may be enough differences to call some of them synthetic, but most all of them are synonymous. Um, And even in the, 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 the bigger differences as a synthetic, they're still very similar. So uh, in this case, the first two lines are rhyming, and the last two lines are rhyming. So you can see the same ideas there. All right, now, as for the command, this may be the biggest question of the verse. Who is David commanding in uh, his words here? Who is not to declare these things in Gath and so forth? Well, we might initially think of the Philistines, of course. Um, they're the ones going to Gath, but uh, maybe others, maybe even Israelites or Amalekites. Uh, maybe David is just saying this to anyone. But if we're going to pick one, it would seem like Philistines don't say anything to your own people. Um, but whatever the case, David's primary goal here is he does not want this bad news to spread. This terrible loss, he doesn't want anyone to rejoice over. Now, in the first two lines, you see the two, uh, two of the cities of Philistia, Gath, and Ashkelon. Uh, remember, there are the five, and so we're not quite sure why David picked these two. Uh, maybe it's just representative. Um, maybe it's for specific reasons. You think of Gath, of course, where Goliath was from Gath. Um, maybe these places were especially hateful to Saul. Maybe they were especially... Uh, emphasizing their religion at the time. Um, some have said, well, Gath was closest to Israel and Ashkelon is one of the furthest away. But whatever the case, he doesn't want anyone in, in, uh, uh, to go to Philistia and declare this news. And the reason is given, of course, in the last two lines. David does not want the news of Saul's death to spread because he doesn't really want them to rejoice over this. Okay. <clears throat> Now, let me pause and say this, and that uh, last line there says about the uncircumcised, and uh, commonly the Philistines were called uncircumcised, and that's because they weren't, literally. But we do need to remember that there were other cultures around Israel that did practice circumcision, Um, and nevertheless, even those cultures were called uncircumcised because their circumcision had nothing to do with the covenant of grace in Abraham. And so even if they were physically circumcised, they weren't spiritually. But at least here in the case of the Philistines, uh, both were true. They were physically uncircumcised and spiritually. Um, 
But to the point, um, David obviously is upset. Israel's king is dead, and he doesn't want it to be on the front page news in Gath or Ashkelon. He doesn't want all the radio stations blaring about this. He doesn't want the songs and everything else happening that would praise Philistia, that would praise Dagon and Baal, and so on and so forth. Now, you might say this is a bit of wishful thinking, because it's what they normally did, right? We still do it today when a battle is won, uh, whether it's a literal war or not. And... um, even Israel did it, of course, in 1 Samuel 17, verse 7. The women were rejoicing that David killed Goliath. And so David here, by not wanting this to happen, is, is reaching, you might say, <laughs> to some degree. Um, and in fact, in 1 Samuel 31, we are told that the word did spread to Philistia. Um, but you still can understand uh, excuse me, David's sentiment here. This is awful news. The king of Israel is dead, God's king. Now, do you see also then how this helps to vindicate David? This defense of David. David is not on the side of the Philistines in any way, even though he lived there for a while. And surely word spread in this kind of Philistine collusion kind of idea that he's in uh, on the side of the Philistines. Not at all. He doesn't want the Philistines to rejoice at all. Even the death of Saul. All right, so let's look now at verse 21. O mountains of Gilboa, no dew and no rain upon you, nor fields of offerings, because there the shield of the mighty ones was rejected. The shield of Saul was not being anointed with oil. Note the last two lines showing some parallelism. Um, And so the same basic idea. So David now moves from... The Philistines rejoicing now to addressing mountains. Here, the mountains of Gilboa. And uh, notice plural, so he's not talking about the specific peak where Saul and Jonathan were killed only, but all the peaks of Gilboa. Now, let me mention just briefly this point. In the first two lines, um, the Hebrew is a bit awkward. In the first one, um, it's what we call a construct relationship. It's not done the normal way. And then in the second line, there's no verb. In the New King James, it adds, uh, let there be, which is a reasonable thing to do, but it's not actually there. And uh, some people have suggested that this communicates some of David's anguish, and in this case, his anger. He is angry with the mountains of Gilboa. He's cursing them. And he's so angry he can't even speak correctly. Now, yes, he wrote this down. It was very deliberate. I'm sure there are poetic reasons, but it seems to communicate uh, his emotion too. And so David here curses the mountains. He wants God to uh, uh, withhold the normal blessings of fertility. He doesn't want any dew to come upon them during the, the late night, early morning. He doesn't want any rain to come during the rainy season, and he doesn't want their fields to be productive. And so this line here, uh, or at the end of the line, uh, fields of offerings has raised all kinds of questions, and people do all kinds of gymnastics to try to understand it, but I don't think it's all that difficult. Um, 
fields of offerings make sense in this way. David does not want the fields to produce and yield harvests, so they cannot be used for tithes and offerings. Now remember, the Philistines just took over this part of the country. Even though this is in Israel, the Philistines have just claimed it for themselves. And so David does not want the Philistines to use any of this production for their worship of Baal and Asherah and Dagon and so on. That doesn't answer all the questions, but I do think it's the best way, and then you're not changing the Hebrew and all that sort of thing, too. I think that makes the most sense. But our overall point here is simply this. Why is David so mad with the mountains? Well, the last two lines, right? The mighty ones were rejected. The shield, especially here, was rejected, and the shield of Saul was not anointed. And so the shields of Uh, The Israelite warriors, not just Saul, were turned aside. They were cast away. They didn't protect. They didn't block the arrows. They didn't stop the sword. And specifically, Saul's shield is no longer anointed with oil, he says. All right, now that seems a bit odd to us. But we need to remember uh, uh, this truth. Uh, At this point, anyway, in Israel's history, they were not using metal shields. They used wood shields covered in leather. And so after the battle, they would oil them down. And this would clean off any filth. It would also help preserve the leather, especially if it had gotten nicked up in some way or another. And so Saul's shield is not being anointed because it's, it's dead, you might say. His shield was never used again. Now note also the play on idea here. Saul himself, of course, was anointed. Anointed by Samuel, anointed by God to be king. Now he is dead. And so the anointed man is dead. The anointed shield has fallen and is dead too in this sense. So to David's primary point here in this verse then, Gilboa did not protect Saul and Jonathan and Israel's men. And since Gilboa, more or less, was fighting for Philistia, they should be cursed too with this drought as judgment. This is a place of national disgrace, and so David is cursing it. Interestingly, the word or name Gilboa is used eight times in the Old Testament. And every time it refers to this event. And so it does seem to highlight what David is doing here. He's mad at the mountains. (laughs) They didn't help. And so he curses them. Now with these two thoughts then in verse 20 and 21, we can completely understand this, right? We don't want our enemies to rejoice over our hardships or the death of someone important to us, we we certainly can understand that. And we don't want them to receive blessings either. We want them to be dried up, as it were. We want them to receive God's judgment. And so we do not want the progressives who hate America to rejoice when those who truly do love our country fall. We don't want anything that helped that downfall to be blessed either, even impersonal things. 
Okay, now obviously people are behind these things, but you don't want the social media companies to succeed when they're harming the issues of liberty and truth. We don't want the courts to do it, uh, or the political machine to receive any kinds of blessings. Okay? Anybody who works against what is true and right, okay, we don't want them to rejoice when something bad happens to us, and we want God to punish them. And so it's a, the same principle that David is communicating here. We can completely understand this. All right, well, let's keep going now. <clears throat> Verses 22 to 24 now, uh, I think best fit together. And notice how they highlight the greatness now of Saul and Jonathan. So we move from telling people not to rejoice, telling the mountains uh, to be cursed here, pronouncing a curse, now to focusing on Saul and Jonathan and how good they were. So verse 22, from the blood of the pierced ones, from the fat of the mighty ones, the bow of Jonathan did not turn back and the sword of Saul did not return without success. Now the first two lines and the last two lines are in parallel and uh, very similar uh, in each one, uh, though you may argue for synthetic there. Um, I think it's also possible for us to put the first and third line and the second and fourth line together. So, from the blood of the pierced ones, the bow of Jonathan did not turn back. That word for pierced one is the same one that we see back in verse 19. And as I said in verse 19, that calls us back to the actual event of 1 Samuel 31, where Saul was shot with an arrow. And so, it seems to fit together here in this way. And his point, simply, is that Jonathan's bow was always successful to pierce the enemy. And we certainly can recall things in 1 Samuel, especially chapter 14, when he and his armor bearer took on the garrison and killed 20, uh, just the two of them as he climbed up the mountainside and so on. Um, and so we can understand right, this, this reference. Um, and remember, too, as I mentioned last time, this is the title of the lament, right? the song of the bow, as it's often uh, said. And here now Jonathan's bow is referenced. Um, so if the first and third line can go together, it makes sense. The second and fourth can too. From the fat of the mighty ones, the sword of Saul did not return without success. And so in this case then, Saul's sword was always defeating the mighty ones among Israel's enemies. All right, even if you don't link it together that way, the point is still the same, isn't it? But it does seem like we can. Um, now we read this. And we think, okay, David, you're, you're, you know, you're <clears throat> stretching the truth a little bit here. Um, he has exaggerated, you might say, the desire not to have any news whatsoever to spread uh, and rejoicing. And, and he has exaggerated in the sense he doesn't want any moisture in Gilboa. And now David seems to be exaggerating the success of Saul and Jonathan. Okay. We know, of course, that Saul was afraid. Uh, they had had some uh, defeats with the Philistines. Remember, they stood around impotent with Goliath and so on. And now, of course, he's dead. The uh, sword of Saul was not successful. The bow of Jonathan was not successful, though it may have been possibly many times. In the end, it wasn't. They're dead. And yet, David here is generally 
saying that Saul and Jonathan were great warriors and regularly did defeat the enemy. And that's not untrue. It's just not completely true. In verse 23, then, he continues, Saul and Jonathan, the ones being loved ones and the pleasant ones, in their lives and in their death, they were not divided. More than eagles, they were swifter. More than lions, they were stronger. Note those last two lines again are in parallel, rhyming the idea. Now, um, the biggest question here in this verse is how do we divide it, especially at the beginning? Uh, Notice what I did there. I put lives and death together in the same line, and your translation may do that. Uh, In the New King James, if you look there, it says in verse 23, Saul and Jonathan were beloved and pleasant in their lives, and in their death they were not divided. So you see how they divide it differently in that way. And so there is some debate on how to take it uh, and so forth. Um, I'm... Um, inclined to go with the way I did, agreeing with those who did and some of the other translations, but uh, there is some debate in that way. Um, But note again, the point is clear, and notice how David again is exaggerating. We know that Saul would have an evil spirit, and that made him miserly, to put it in the best possible way. (laughs) We knew he uh, threw his spear and so on and so forth. And we know that Jonathan and Saul were not on the same page when it came to David. And that's, that spear even came for Jonathan at least once. Nevertheless, overall, they were loved. They were pleasant. Maybe David's emphasizing Jonathan more than Saul here. But they were together, even at the end. Jonathan stood by Saul really all along uh, until the end. And so, again, David here is focusing on the good parts, you might say. Now, in the last two lines here, then, it says, uh, with more exaggeration here, that they were faster than the fastest bird of prey and stronger than the strongest animal of prey. And again, generally, that's true. We saw Saul saving Jabesh Gilead in 1 Samuel 11, And, of course, Jonathan being instrumental in the defeat of the Philistines in 1 Samuel 14. As I mentioned before, uh, it is quite likely that they mowed down a number of Philistines before they were actually dead on the day they did die. But, you know, before we criticize David for his exaggeration, isn't this what we often do? When we are mourning the loss of our loved ones. Yes, sometimes we focus on the bad things. But how many times have you heard a eulogy at a funeral or memorial service where somebody gets up and lists all the terrible things about the person that just died? We don't do that. We focus on the good things, don't we? Maybe some of the hard things are mentioned, but for the most part, we emphasize what was good about them and how they were a blessing to us, and how we're going to miss them, and things like that. If you look at the outlines on the back again, in the the chiasm one, the second one there, notice that these two verses are right in the middle, which indicates to us that this is one of David's primary ideas in this lament. 
is so well organized that we can point to several structural things to highlight the point. But this center point is this. David, in his capacity as king, is not bad-mouthing Saul. He is praising him. He's lifting him up, even in death, even for all the things that Saul did to harm David and all the men with him and so forth. David's focusing on the good things. And by putting this in the middle, it seems again to be the author's way, uh, and even David's way, to defend David. All right, well, let's come then to verse 24. <clears throat> o daughters of Israel, with regard to Saul, weep. The ones who, excuse me, the one who clothed you in scarlet with luxurious things, the one who brought up ornaments of gold upon your garments. Again, note the last two lines are in parallel here. Same basic idea. Now, if you look at the outline here again on the back, uh, I pointed out to you last time, let me do it again. There is some debate on where to put verse 24. Note in the first outline, it's put with verses 22 and 23. And the second one is put with verses 25 and 26. So how do we handle this? Well, if we put it with the two verses we've just looked at, do you see how this verse is still describing the blessings that came from Saul? Okay? Defeated all their enemies, and they were together and mighty and all this, and all kinds of wonderful things were given by Saul to the women. And so you see how it fits that theme. If we put it with the next two verses, though, here note the command is to weep. And in verse 26 especially, you see David weeping for Jonathan. And so I think there are good arguments for either one of these positions. What <clears throat> tips me in the direction of putting verse 24 with what we've just talked about is the fact that the refrain begins verse 25. And so we have the refrain in verse 19, 25, and 27, and the fact that it's in verse 25 seems to break the thought. And so let's put verse 24 with what David has just said. So that's how I've taken it, and that's how I proceed, um, though obviously there's overlap in both directions, you might say. Well, of course, in verse 20, David addressed the Philistine women and didn't want them to rejoice. Now he's dressing the, the Israelite women, and he's telling them, weep, mourn for Saul, especially, he says. So why should they do this? Well, the last two lines um, uh, give us the answer. Because Saul provided you with many good things. Now it is possible that Saul went around and gave personal gifts to specific women. You could take it that way, and if that's the case, these daughters of Israel would be a smaller group of people. Um, I think it's more likely that Saul helped to establish a society that allowed for trade and thus for wealth to increase. Now remember, during the days of the judges, that was not the case, especially toward the end. Because of Israel's failure to rest in God as their king, and they turned to idols, God brought all these things, and so their wealth diminished 
because of uh, the failure to lead well and to have a stable society and so on. Well, for all of Saul's failures, and he certainly had many, he did help to establish prosperity in Israel, at least to some degree. And for all the evils of a monarchy in and of itself, there are some benefits that come from it. And so there is much more prosperity, especially compared to the end of the time of the judges. There's much more prosperity now under Saul. And so David is saying, mourn the hand that blessed you. And so again, I I think it fits better here with what we've just seen in the previous verses. Now let me pause and make this point here for ourselves. For all the evils of a controlled economy, and we are reaping many of those evils with inflation and so on and so forth. What did we see the other day, guys, in 1970? A new car was, what, $3,450 or something like that? An inflationary society is not a good thing. It's a form of theft. And for all those evils, for all the evils of a progressive socialist state, There are some blessings that come along with it, at least for a time. That time seems to be closing and ending. All right, well, let's keep going then. Verses 25 and 26, focus on Jonathan. Verse 25, how mighty ones have fallen in the midst of the battle. Jonathan, upon your high places, is pierced. Obviously, this verse begins with the refrain, And uh, it's inserted into this longer clause. And so notice, the mighty ones have not fallen because of old age. It wasn't because they got COVID. It's because of battle. It's because of this. They didn't die because of a coup. They died because they lost to the Philistines. Note also then this point... If you look at verse 19 again, do you see the similarities and you see the reverse order? Verse 19 begins, the beauty of Israel upon your high places is pierced. And now verse 25 ends with Jonathan upon your high places is pierced. And then verse 19 ends with the refrain. Verse 25 begins with it. And so uh, you may remember I mentioned last week because of this connection, That's why I think verse 19 specifically is emphasizing Saul. And now here, verse 25, is emphasizing Jonathan. And so, the beauty of Israel was pierced on Israel's mountains. But now here, Jonathan specifically is. All right, now, um, obviously the mighty ones in the first line... Uh, would refer to more than Jonathan, and there certainly were others on the high places of Gilboa that uh, were killed. But Jonathan especially is the mighty one who fell. As verse 19 called us back to the actual event of 1 Samuel 31, so too does this one. Uh, Let's turn there just a moment in 1 Samuel 31. Of course, there's a lot of information about Saul and his death. Not much about Jonathan. Verse 1. Now the Philistines fought against Israel, and the men of Israel fled from before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines followed hard after Saul and his sons, and the Philistines killed Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malkishua, Saul's sons. 
all it says, but obviously it says enough. And David here then is referring back to this event. The fact that he is pierced may suggest that he was killed with an arrow as well uh, and not a sword, but obviously he's referring back to it. So you might say verse 26, though, is the main point of this uh, small section. It is distressing to me concerning you, my brother Jonathan. You were dear to me exceedingly. Your love to me was wonderful, more than the love of women. Isn't it interesting that there's no parallelism here? (laughs) For all the parallelism David has used, this poetic element in Hebrew, he doesn't use it here. Uh, Maybe it's too hard for him to rhyme the ideas. (laughs) It's, It's so painful for him. But whatever the case, just note that difference. And you can understand that this is the only time David refers to himself in the lament. He could have in other places, but this is the only place where he does. David, of course, is distressed. Jonathan was like a brother. Now, oftentimes we see you know, pictures or descriptions of David and Jonathan as being basically the same age. But Jonathan was clearly older. Remember, David was uh, about uh, 15 when he was anointed. It was another 15 years until right, uh, he becomes king. Um, it is unlikely that Jonathan would be out with a uh, bodyguard climbing mountains, defeating garrisons of the Philistines at the same age. He probably was at least 20 at that point, and maybe even 15 to 20 years older than David. We don't know for sure. But... Whatever the case, they were best buds, we might say. What do you you say it now? Besties? Is that the the language anymore? But anyway, um, obviously um, exceedingly precious, as he says. Very dear uh, was Jonathan to David. He says also that Jonathan's love is even more than the love of women. All right, now let me develop a few thoughts here. First of all, <clears throat> this, you may remember I mentioned this in 1 Samuel, this is not an indication that David and Jonathan were in some kind of gay relationship. Let me read here a moment. This is from um, the Reformation Study Bible Notes. It says it this way. <clears throat> Modern attempts to find in this verse evidence for a homosexual relationship between Jonathan and David have no exegetical warrant. Sadly, many people in our hypersexualized culture find it inconceivable that people of the same gender can have deep, loving friendships with one another without transgressing boundaries into sexual intimacy. Scripture, however, frequently extols the bonds of brotherhood and sisterhood, friendships that exhibit sacrificial love without any hint of eroticism. Okay. <clears throat> We see this in other ways, too, in our culture, that when it comes to sexual things, when it comes to true godly masculinity or something like that, our culture just doesn't understand it. And some of that is purposeful. Some of it is because they've just never experienced it. Uh, But there's no reason for us to go down the path into this gay agenda here for David and Jonathan. But what this is highlighting is that the love of friends can be very close. And in this case, of course, Jonathan was very selfless. 
Remember, he refused to claim the throne. Let me read for you just briefly. This is chapter 23 in 1 Samuel. Remember these words in verse 17. Jonathan said to David, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul my father shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Even my father Saul knows that. And so it makes reference to the covenant they made in chapter 18 and so on. You might remember these things. And so um, Jonathan loved David enough, or maybe better we could say, Jonathan loved God enough to love David. Saul refused to listen to, to God's word of punishment, but Jonathan listened. And he supported David over himself. He supported David over his father, even at risk to himself. And so this, you can understand then why David is so moved by Jonathan's love for him and now so grieved at his death. Now, another point to mention here briefly. This does not indicate to us that friendship is better than marriage as a regular thing. Sometimes it may be, but not necessarily all the time. We also need to remember that marriage in that day was typically arranged. It was for procreation, it was for social ties. We'll see some of that uh, in uh, even uh, the next chapter. Um, But um, that idea of I've fallen in love with, you know, the one that's meant for me and all this stuff that we might talk about today, that that was not a common way of describing marriage in the days of David and Jonathan. So for David to say Jonathan had uh, more love in that relationship within his many wives is quite understandable, especially because of these things. But simply, David lost his best friend. Greater love often then leads to greater grief. And so we can expand this then if we think about a long marriage, someone who's been married for 30, 40, 50, 60 years or something like that, or if you have a close friend like this, or maybe a relative that you have had a great relationship with over the years or whatever, it it just makes it harder when they die. And so for all of the grief that David showed towards Saul, you can understand why he has these two verses here. So, notice how the refrain begins this in verse 25, and then note how it follows it in verse 27. And so verse 27, how mighty ones have fallen and weapons of war perished. He ends with some more parallelism here, obviously. And the third time for the refrain. Uh, Let me give you a couple numbers here briefly. This word for fall is used four times in 1 Samuel uh, chapter 31. It's used seven times in 2 Samuel chapter 1 and three times here in the lament, each time in the refrain. The word mighty one is used five times in this lament. The point is clear here, isn't it? They've fallen. The mighty ones of Israel, especially Saul and Jonathan, have fallen. David returns here then to this general statement of grief, not so specific like with Jonathan, but here more general. 
Saul, Jonathan, the other sons of Saul, the other Israelites fell on Mount Gilboa. The weapons are now on the ground, rusting and rotting. The human weapons are on the ground. They are lost. They are gone. This is horrible. So, in many ways, you can understand why some people say that this lament is maybe the best one ever written. I say, well, he doesn't mention God here, so I'm not sure we can say that. But you can at least understand, this is very, very well written. It's capturing the idea of grief in a a very uh, powerful way. Now, certainly, we can take this lament and we can apply it in our setting today, especially in the immediate setting of soldiers lost in battle. God forbid we use this lament because of Rebecca McIntyre. But certainly it would be fitting in those kinds of settings. But we certainly can apply this to other settings, like spiritual warriors who are lost. We were talking about the, the Elliots here this week. So you think of Jim Elliot and how he was killed, martyred for his faith. And we can use laments like this then to mourn the loss of loved ones like that. But even when church leaders die of old age, even when people that we love in our families die, whether it's illness or accident or whatever it is, grief is an unfortunate part of life. And it can be overwhelming. And you can hear some of that overwhelmingness in the words of David. Let me read here a couple things briefly. Um, first of all, this is from Dr. Davis. And uh, first of all, he says this. In a written lament, words cannot simply be dumped or gushed or mushed as in initial grief. Here one cannot simply vomit out feelings, but must choose words. Not that the lament is cold, objective, and detached. Rather, the intensity of one's emotions unite with the discipline of one's mind to produce structured sorrow, a sort of authorized version of distress, a kind of coherent agony. In a lament, therefore, words are carefully selected, crafted, honed to express loss as closely yet as fully as possible. David has done this well. And then he says this. The sorrows and wounds God's people receive from their losses are not miraculously healed after a short time of emotional catharsis. Sometimes in the church, there is such an impatience with grief. Why isn't Alan over Carol's death or Connie over Tom since it's been 18 months now? Why can't that mother get beyond the death of her 10-year-old child? And then he expands and says this, I do not deny that believers may deal with loss in wrong ways. However, the persistence of grief is normal, not pathological. With passage of time, the acuteness of sorrow may lessen, but its ache remains. I recall a Christian woman in her 70s telling me that her husband had been dead 13 years and still She felt the loneliness and missed his companionship. 
She was, is, about a well-balanced, mature, joyful Christian woman, but she lost the husband she loved and in one way had never gotten over it, nor should she. Great grief has, excuse me, great love has the greater pain. And then he finishes here. The lament form of the Bible assumes that our grief is deep and ongoing. And it invites us to enter the discipline of expressing that grief in words that convey our anguish, in images that picture our despair, in written prayers that verbalize despondency. Why should God's people be shoddy in their sorrow? I I think he's nailing it right on the head. If we are not to grieve beyond just that moment of sorrow, why would we have laments in the Bible like this? It's a clear indication that not that we wallow in our grief, but it's understandable that we are still grieving the loss of our loved ones, maybe if it's been 10, 20, even 30, whatever years ago. It's normal, you might say, to do that. Let me read also here briefly. This is Joyce Baldwin. And uh, she says like this. This then is the poem which David wanted all Israel to know by heart and which was written in the nation's anthology of great events. Remember the book of Jashar. Indeed, all the great families had a place in this lament. Having supplied their own mighty men to fight alongside Saul and Jonathan. And so it became their lament also. As the mourning women wept for their own sons and husbands, so they would weep for the king and his son. Such is the power of poetry. When I've done funerals, um, you may recall me saying, um, death is not normal. This is not the way God intended it to be. Life should not end in death. We shouldn't be comfortable with it. We say things we can count on in life are death and taxes, and you can understand that, but it's still not the way it's supposed to be. And so when we, when we come to verses um, uh, 11 and 12, that's understandable. And, and you might say, that's what our culture, even our Christian culture, is okay with. But as Dr. Davis says, we struggle with verses 19 and following. And we think people should move on quickly. Okay. Time heals all wounds, we're told, right? Yeah, maybe some. I I think there's some powerful um, implications from this lament. We obviously have looked at the details of it. But as we think of the broader point, let's be like David. Let us mourn. Let us grieve. Not just for the moment, but even over time. Let us come together and mourn together. Let's learn a song of grief so that we can mourn together. There's a place for this in the church. 
And just because God is not mentioned here does not mean there is no hope. In the very next verse, in chapter 2, verse 1, Yahweh is the focal point. At the end of the book, in chapters 22 and 23, Yahweh is the focal point. He is our hope. He is worthy of all of our praise. God is our hope in death. God does soothe our griefs and our sorrows. Jesus rose from the dead. He is the resurrection of the life. All of that is true. And that's why we can hope in our sorrow and in our grief. But let's not minimize the significance of grief. And so uh, here are a few thoughts then uh, about this lament. And we'll turn next time to the next part of the story. Let's pray together. Our Father and God, we thank you again for your word. We thank you for what you teach us here. We thank you for the, uh, the structure of this lament and the many things we've seen and learned in it. We are thankful, Lord, that um, there is hope in death, that it's not just sorrow, it's not just uh, grieving, it's not just the pain that is associated with the loss of a loved one. Uh, there is more than that. We can uh, hope for heaven, we can hope for for you to, to bring about blessing even in the face of, of sorrow and death and sin. But Lord, we pray, especially here tonight, that you would help us in our grieving. For some of us, we've lost loved ones here over the last, um, you know, roughly five or ten years. For, for um, I think, most all of us here in the room. Others, of course, even longer ago than that. Um, and the acuteness of that grief may not be there, but certainly the sorrow remains. And so we pray, Lord, that we would not wallow in this grief, but that we would grieve, even in this continuous, more longer-term way, that as we grieve, that we would um, certainly keep in mind the hope that we have in you. And so we pray, Lord, that you would help us to find a balance here in the right ways, recognizing that death is not the way you intended it to be, um, and yet also knowing that there is a solution to this problem through Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we pray uh, all these things then in Jesus' name. Amen.